Once upon a time, many years ago, I lived in Spain. When I moved there, my Spanish was okay, but here's the thing. Where I was living, most of the time, people didn't speak Spanish. A little difficult, right? Mm -hmm. I lived in the Basque country. That's three regions in the north of Spain and one in the south of France that have an ethnic population and linguistic group that is different from either Spain or France. So the language spoken there is called Euskera, and it's not an Indo-European language at all. Right? People in that region have simply been speaking a version of this language since the Stone Ages. Right? So when I went out there in the village where I lived, I heard some Spanish, and certainly everyone would speak this with me, but mainly I heard Euskera. And I ended up learning to count from 1 to 20, right? And I amassed a vast vocabulary of maybe 15 to 20 words. But since I was mainly intent on bettering my Spanish and just, you know, figuring out how to survive in a different culture, that's about as far as I got in Euskera. So as I wandered around in the streets of the village, I was simply hearing this pleasant blur of sound around me and generally not knowing what people were saying. Okay, so picture me on my return trip to the US, landing in JFK Airport. I'm already sad about leaving behind my friends in the Basque country, and I'm weary to the bone with jet lag. I walk through customs, and suddenly my ears are assaulted in a way they haven't been in a year. Rather than this, this pleasant blur of sound around me, I understand basically everything everyone is saying because it's all in English. It's this sensory nightmare and I can't turn it off, right? It feels like all of these conversations are taking place right inside my head because in that year of rarely hearing English, of not needing to tune out other people's conversations, I've lost the ability to do this automatically. This new and unexpected twist to my experience leaves me crying with frustration by the time I climb into a blessedly quiet taxi. Attention. At that moment, I didn't have the ability to give attention. It was simply pulled from me, right? And for a week or so, I felt as scattered as seeds in a wind anytime I was out in public. My thoughts constantly pulled by whatever I was hearing around me. And then that cocoon in which we naturally seem to walk the one in which the sights and sounds of other people with whom we're not directly interacting can be pushed to the edges of our consciousness. It just settled back around me. So we think about attention as focusing in on one thing and dismissing dis distractions. But if we look at it from the other side, 
What this means is that we're constraining our experience of the world in a particular direction. William James wrote, my experience is what I agree to attend to. Only those things which I notice shape my mind. So as we choose to give our attention to one thing, we effectively put blinders on to a lot of other things, often in a really needful way, like I had that need when I landed in that airport. There's just too much out there all the time for us to take it all in. We have to limit what we actually receive into our consciousness or else we'd just be frustrated and overwhelmed all the time. Cognitive scientist Alexander Horowitz notes this narrowing of attention as a sign of the human condition. One trouble with being human, she says, is that as with many conditions, you can't turn it off. Even as we develop from relatively immobile, helpless infants into mobile, autonomous adults, we're more and more constrained by the ways we learn to see the world. So think about how we're affected by what we decide to give our attention to. Recently, I was talking with a friend who kept going on and on about the trials and travails of the world. And as you know, the world has lots of trials and travails to keep going on about. So there was just no end in sight to this list, right? So finally, I was getting worn out with the endless sorrow and negativity. Say something good now, I demanded. <laughs> something good about the world. So my friend looked kind of askance at me, sighed, and started talking, I kid you not, about reading how the number of sexual assaults in Barcelona had gone up in recent years. <laughs> so now I'm looking askance at him, and he tells me that the good part is that it's not really assaults that have gone up, but rather that reporting is up. Right, so that's a good thing, okay, but it sure doesn't make it onto any list I can concoct about the wonder and joy of this incredible world or of this incredible humanity. My friend's attention, at least in that moment, was drawn entirely to the pain and sorrow and suffering of this world and those inhabiting it. Even the good he could think of was wrapped around this suffering. And while every bit of the world's pain needs our profound attention and urgent action, we'll fall into a well of despair if that's all we ever hold our attention on when we look beyond ourselves. We must also settle our attention on the lush quiet of midnight, on the simple beauty of a field at dawn, on the sacred impact of one stranger reaching out to help another in a time of need. We must pay attention to where we allow our attention to settle. Yes. 
Alexander Horowitz, the cognitive scientist I mentioned above, wrote this intriguing book called On Looking, 11 Walks with Expert Eyes. In it, she writes about walking around her New York City apartment block with 11 different experts in hopes of discovering what they would see and learning more about attention and its constraints. So her experts range from a geologist with the American Museum of Natural History to a blind woman to her own toddler. And with each, she discovers a whole new world hidden within that block, seeing and hearing and learning things that had lived outside the blinders of her own attention. The geologist opens her eyes to the world not as a series of, of man-made objects, but rather an ecosystem of minerals and the biomass of plants and animals thriving amidst these city streets. The blind woman helps Horowitz turn her attention from the visual to what's available to her other senses. The wind effects in the city, the auditory landscape of the block. Toddlers, Horowitz's toddler forces her to see all the people on the street as actually real life people and not just objects to be moved around. Right? So when all Horowitz discovers that each brings to this block an attention, an expertise, which is itself a way of constraining the world, right? that's different than her own way of giving attention. So Horowitz reminds us that we talk with others, and we listen to others, and we walk with others to learn about their ways of giving attention, to learn what they can see or hear or discover that we simply can't. And as our own eyes are opened, not to new realities, but to realities that have already existed beyond the scope of our own attention, our experience of the world is changed over and over again. When we pay close attention, we're changed by what is, from plants creeping up in the midst of the city sidewalk, to the sounds drifting into the road from the road, to the smile of that person whose eye I just caught. And we in turn have the ability then to change the world around us. The French revolutionary and spiritual writer Simone Weil saw attention as a holy turning a holy turning toward a person or thing. Attention, she tells us, is the rarest and purest form of generosity. It's the giving of the self in its truest state, a giving of concentrated consciousness. And Vey tells us that this unadulterated giving is holy. She says, attention taken to its highest degree is the same thing as prayer. Absolute, unmixed attention is prayer. Now, I was stunned by Vey's statement the first time I read it. I don't know about you, but I was taught that prayer was about talking to God, telling God things, 
or listening to God and trying to hear what God wants in my life. But something in these words about unmixed attention being prayer rang so true that I, I just couldn't let them blow by me. I thought of the scientist in their lab seeking and searching for the next breakthrough, of the writer with pen in hand pouring their truth on a page, of the new parent gently bathing their infant for the first time. Unmixed attention, a space of creativity and grace, of newness pouring through, of life arising from the most profound depths. And as this new way of thinking about prayer took hold within me, I began to recognize it in more and more of the spaces around me in the world. The incredible grace of an athlete who's in the zone, right? A child determinedly drawing with crayons. Lovers gazing into each other's eyes. Prayers, one and all. In each of these examples, the person's attention is so completely focused that all else falls away, including consciousness of themselves as separate beings. The ego recedes. They're simply in the flow. So the poet J.D. McCatchy says that love is the quality of attention we pay to things. When we recognize attention as prayer, as love, as holy, when it is given most purely, we begin to recognize the power we have in simply turning our attention, in turning the force of ourselves, our own depths, our own truths, towards something or someone else. Attention, love, holiness, the words become interchangeable. And in recognizing this, my questions naturally arise for you. Where do you give this attention? To what? Do you give this kind of love? Where do you form this kind of prayer? And then perhaps even more importantly, where do you want to form this kind of prayer in your life? How will you allow your attention to open new spaces of holiness and love for yourself and others? The beginning of the Buddhist scripture known as the Dhammapada says that our life is shaped by our mind. We become what we think. Who we are is the result of where we put our attention. May you recognize and make use of this deep generosity, the true love, and the profound holiness of your attention wisely and well. Namaste and amen.